to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wyant, Director of Communications with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. HPV, the human papillomavirus, is perhaps the most common sexually transmitted infection. In the U.S. each year, there are over 14 million new cases of HPV. You combine the new and existing cases, and you'll have nearly 80 million individuals with an HPV infection. These infections are so routine, we sometimes refer to them as the common cold of STIs, and that makes sense. The majority of sexually active people are actually thought to have one or more HPV infections in their lifetime. So, as you might imagine, HPV keeps us pretty busy, and we field countless questions on the topic. Today, though, we're asking the questions, and it is our good fortune indeed that an expert in the field, Dr. Ina Park, has taken time from her busy schedule to chat with us. Dr. Park is the medical director of the California STD HIV Prevention Training Center. She's also an assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco, in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, and she provides clinical care and teaching at San Francisco General Hospital. That is a busy schedule indeed. So Dr. Park, welcome, and thank you for taking time to talk with us today. It's my pleasure, Fred. So, wow, there's a lot of HPV and a lot of different types of HPV. Yes, sir. In fact, there's now over 170 different types of HPV that have now been classified, and they can generally be um, divided into the types that cause cancer and those that would not cause cancer or would cause things like common warts on the hands or um, genital warts. And so the, the types that can cause cancer um, might cause head and neck cancer, cancers of the anus or the cervix, and then the other types would not have any opportunity to cause cancer but could cause a lot of other issues like warts. Okay. And you're talking about 170 types uh, or, or even more. So some uh, of the – so how do people acquire these HPV infections? You know, um, de depending on, um, on what you're doing and what type it is, you know, things like um, HPV that causes warts on the hands can just be through skin-to-skin -skin contact. And then in the case of the 40 or so types that infect the anal genital tract, those can be transmitted um, through skin-to-skin -skin contact that could be acquired during sexual contact. Um, but even things other than sexual intercourse can transmit HPV, so just touching genital to genitals or touching hands to genitals, for example. Okay, so that sounds like an important point. So there are many different types of HPV, but not all of them are linked with sexual contact. Correct. About um, 40 types are linked to sexual contact, more or less. Okay. When we talk about HPV, the cancer-causing types, especially those associated with cervical cancer, understandably get a lot of the spotlight. Yeah. But, but you mentioned warts and genital warts, or to be more precise, anal genital warts. Are, are an important sexual health matter in their own right. Um, so let's talk about that. First off, what are the symptoms of warts? What, what do they look like? You know, um, warts can have a lot of different appearances. And so um, when someone is sort of, you know, looking and seeing a new growth down in the anogenital area, if they're not sure if it's a wart, it's a good idea to come in and have it checked. But they can be um, anything from like a small little flesh-colored bump um, all the way to something that looks like a little head of a cauliflower. And in fact, they can get quite large um, and can even be kind of like moist and um, looking like sort of like a large uh, cauliflower-like growth with, um, with a little bit of bleeding. And so there's a huge range of what warts might appear like. Mm. And how are warts diagnosed clinically? 
You know, there's not any special test, Fred. Really, when someone comes in and says, you know, I think I've got something growing down there, or I think I might have a wart, you know, really it's just with visual inspection. So it's basically just having a good light and getting close to um, where the lesion is and taking a look at it. And just based on your, um, you know, clinical judgment and your knowledge of what warts can look like, and that's sort of how the diagnosis is made. In rare cases, Fred, when when something is bleeding or um, is sort of stuck to the tissue and you're a little bit worried that it could be either cancer or a warty growth, sometimes you need to take a little specimen or a, what they call a biopsy mm -hmm. to see whether or not it's a wart or something more serious, like a precancer or a cancer. Uh, you said there's no real test. So would you, I mean, I, I know there are HPV tests. So would you talk about what, why are there no, no tests for warts or anything other than just a visual inspection? Sure. Um, you know, there are HPV tests available, Fred, and those are primarily used in the context of um, looking for cervical cancer or screening uh, young women for cervical cancer. And so those are often done in combination with uh, the PAP test, which I think a lot of listeners might be familiar with. The thing that, about warts is that 90% of them are actually caused by different types that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. these non-cancer-causing types, and those are um, HPV 6 and 11, and that's mostly important because we're going to talk a little bit about vaccines to prevent these. But those types um, are not really included in the tests that are used to look for cervical cancer, and so doing a test like that on somebody who might have a wart is really not going to tell you whether or not they have the HPV infection that's causing that wart or not. So it's really sort of comparing apples and oranges there. Okay. Let's talk for a second about treatment options. I know there are a lot of approaches when it comes to removing warts, some that are done in a clinic and some that uh, mm -hmm. patients can use at home. So uh, tell us something about the, the, the provider-administered treatment options. Sure. You know, there's a whole host of um, treatments, and in fact, in terms of what's recommended by the CDC, you know, there's um, eight treatments, and there's going to be an, another that's going to be coming out actually today in the new guidelines. But um, in terms of the provider-administered treatments, you can do things like freezing it. You can also put on, um, you know, things like um, uh, acid to um, to sort of burn the burn the wart. And you can also do surgical removal. So there's, there's a lot of different things that you can put on the wart to actually destroy it in the office. And those treatments are usually done, um, they're done usually at one time to all the warts, unless there's a lot of them, in which case we would do a sort of staged approach and treat some today and have you come back in and treat some in a couple weeks. But if someone's coming in and doesn't have a ton of warts, I try to treat all of them in, at once. And then I let them know that they probably will need to come back for a repeat treatment. Usually one treatment is not sufficient to, to get worse. And so I want to set people up so they're not disappointed by expecting everything to be gone after one treatment. Okay. And what about the, uh, the patient-applied treatment options that folks can use at home? Sure. Um, there, there are three options right now that are recommended. And uh, one of them is called Podophilox. Um, its trade name is Condolox, and it's a solution or a gel, and the, the patient can apply that at home. Um, you know, typically, it's applied for several days a week, and then you have se uh, several days off as well. So you do these sort of cycles of on again, off again, until you notice that the warts are, are disappearing. Then there's another um, cream called Amiquimod that's coming in a 5% formulation as well as uh, a weaker 3.75. Uh, percent strength, and so those can be also applied by the by the patient. Um, the weaker one you can apply every day, and the stronger one um, also needs to be done just several times a week. 
And then there's another, um, finally, the last one is uh, an ointment actually based on green tea, and it's called uh, the Sinecatechins. And that um, is also applied on a periodic basis and can be applied, um, you know, for up to 16 weeks. So all of these, so Fred, you know, they're, they're all just options that I'm just laying them out there, not because I'm saying one is better than the other. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the truth is, is whether you do it in the office or whether the patient does it at home, the effectiveness of the treatments is essentially similar. So I don't actually tout one over the other when I have a patient who's coming to me with warts. I kind of figure out what's going to work best for them, and then we kind of go accordingly with the treatment. After warts are removed, how likely are they to come back, or how how frequently are there recurrences? You know, um, Fred, that really depends on how many warts there were to begin with and um, the person's immune system. Um, for example, but I really set people up to say that, you know, at least a third of people we think are going to recur in the first six months after being treated with warts. And that sounds like a lot, I know, but I mention that to people because I say, you know, I don't want to set you up for disappointment. I want you to understand that this can be a recurrent condition and that it may take many months for you to clear this, but hopefully each time a recurrence does occur, it'll be smaller than the initial sort of outcropping of warts. Now that, you know, of course some people do respond beautifully and don't have a recurrence after the first treatment, but I do want to let people know that recurrences do happen, and if you expect that, then you'll be sort of emotionally prepared when it does happen. Okay. Let me ask about the psychological and social impact of HPV and warts. Um, You know, if somebody has a common wart on their elbow or their finger, it may be annoying, Mm -hmm. but they probably don't get too upset about it. But you you put the same thing below the the waistline, and (laughs) it's a whole different area, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And and also, we get a lot of questions about partners. So let let me ask about partners first. So so when someone is diagnosed with an HPV-related disease like warts, it's generally assumed their sex partner shares the virus. Is that fair to say? You know what, that is really fair to say. Um, one of the most common things that happens when someone comes in and gets diagnosed with warts is they, they ask me, well, you know, who gave this to me and, and my partner's cheating on me, and they, and they typically get really upset about that. And so I think that's a really important thing to mention to somebody when they're coming in um, with the, this condition is that it's impossible usually to tell who gave HPV to whom, and <clears throat> unless the person was never sexually active in the past, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly which partner might be responsible, or perhaps it was, um, perhaps it was them that they, they already had the infection and they didn't realize it, and they just happened to develop the warts now. And so I think a large amount of time is spent with, you know, just counseling the patient on the fact that this is not a sign of infidelity and that your partner is likely to share the HPV types that you do have. And actually, there's been some research to show that there are also partners who not only share some types of HPV, but they also have types of HPV that are different from one another as well. So both are true. Okay. Are there any worries about reinfection after treatment or that a couple will make it worse by continuing to have sex? You know, that's a good question, Fred. Um, That's certainly been looked at in the context of uh, cervical precancer. And there have been um, there have been some studies that have looked at if, if a woman has 
you know, precancerous lesion on the cervix caused by HPV, if her partner does use condoms, then there is um, a greater chance that that lesion will get better than if um, they continue to have unprotected sex. Now, with warts, um, in terms of reinfection, you know, most likely both partners have already been exposed to the types that are causing warts. And so, in terms of when, when once the wart is removed, you know, what should folks do? If they were not interested in using condoms, I don't tell them that they need to use condoms to protect the other partner because most likely both partners have already been exposed. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I think whenever we have an HPV conversation with the folks who email or call us, eventually it always seems to come down to questions like, will I always have HPV? Will I always mm -hmm. be able to transmit? Do I need to tell new partners? That kind of thing. And how would you counsel somebody who's asking about HPV and relationships maybe you know, down the road? Yeah, you know, this is a great question, Fred, and I always get, that's the first question almost that I get um, when someone, you know, is diagnosed with a genital wart, and they say, you know, am I going to be dealing with this forever? And what I say to them is probably not. You know, mo many people, in terms of being able to detect HPV um, with the most sensitive test that we have, most people after they get an HPV infection will clear it after two years. Now, that's not always the case. You know, there there are some people that have chronic infection for many decades, but generally speaking, the average person should be, should clear HPV to a point where you can't detect it, you know, after about two years. And so in terms of what the CDC recommends for disclosing to partners, it's really different than it is for genital herpes. So they don't routinely recommend that you need to tell a future partner about a remote history of warts, especially if they've resolved and you haven't had any recurrences. What I would say, though, is that when someone does have warts, even if it is a very small outbreak, you know, I tell them, if you've got warts now, you should let your partner know um, because the fact that you have warts says that you definitely have a, an HPV infection that is reproducing and a shedding virus, so we know that you're doing that right now, and it's a good idea to disclose now. But, you know, a few years later when everything's been dealt with and you haven't had a recurrence in a while, it's not really necessary to let partners know that you had a remote history because, again, Fred, we're all going to get HPV at some point in our lives. Right, right. That's And, and that's the big thing to keep coming back to, I believe. Just Again, it's the common cold of STIs, right? It is. And, and you know, I just want everyone to think like, you know, hey, I'm infected, you're infected, we're all infected, and it's okay. Well, that and you know, and that that nicely segues back to the what I mentioned a few minutes ago about stigma, um, and I think we've pretty well established that there is stigma and a, and a psychological fallout from from having sure. HPV and warts. And you know, I'm reminded of a call I had. Um, uh, so it's it's been a while, but uh, a, a woman who had had an abnormal Pap test result, and she was told she had a, a high risk or cancer linked type yep. of HPV. She she called. And uh, her only worry was that she might develop something visible, like in the way of warts, because usually abnormal cervical cell changes aren't going to manifest in anything you can really see, you know, or feel, right. unlike an external wart. And uh, that that was the only thing she wanted to, to talk about. And the fact that she <laughs> had she had you know a, a, a cancer-linked HPV, even though cancer is not a common outcome, especially when detected early, and all that. She didn't care about that. She, she she would actually cut me off and say, yeah, 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 I get that, but will I actually see anything? Will anything be visible? And and that's all she cared about. 
You know, it's interesting because people are so concerned um, that they're going to be rejected by their partner. Sure. Or that their partner is going to think that, you know, they they must have been up to something or, you know, they must have been unfaithful. And so, yes, I mean, I think people are also afraid that, you know, that the warts might be disfiguring or that they might have permanent scarring. And, you know, that's very, very unusual. And I think another way to sort of frame this for us is that, you know, this is really just an, it's a nuisance, you know, I mean, the fact that we all get HPV is, is something that hopefully will make people feel a little bit better. And then, you know, the person that's dealing with warts might say like, you know, well, why me? You know, why am I dealing with this? And, and the truth is, is it is just a little, it's a little bad luck there because again, so many of us are walking around with HPV 6 and 11 you know, before a vaccination was around, um, when we look at sort of national surveys, you know, probably at least 6% of 14 to 19-year-olds were walking around with HPV 6 and 11, but just a few, a select few are going to get warts. And so I just tell them, yes, you know, you're unlucky right now. Uh, might be your immune system, might just be, you know, sort of luck of the draw. But this is a nuisance and you're going to get rid of it and you're going to go on to, you know, have a, a totally normal life and, and a totally normal sex life. And, you know, the vast majority of cases. Well, let's talk about vaccines and prevention. And before we get to the vaccines, I actually did mm -hmm. want to want to go back to the topic of condoms. Uh, you mentioned sure. that uh, uh, a few minutes ago. So just how well do condoms work in, in reducing HPV transmission? You know, um, condoms are, are, are not 100% effective. I have to be honest. You know, they're not 100% effective in reducing HPV transmission because you know, when someone gets an anogenital HPV infection, Fred, the virus can be shedding from the skin around the genitals. Um, for a man, it can be shedding not only from the penis, but from the scrotum, also from the um, perianal area and from the anus, even in men who are not having anal sex. And the same is true for women. So the, so the skin of the anogenital tract might actually be shedding virus. And, you know, the condom is only covering the penis. And so you know, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to prevent all transmissions that way, but certainly it, it you know, it helps. And, you know, we're not obviously going to cover ourselves in latex every time we go out and, and try to have sex. And right. so we can't, you know, we, we can't cover everything. Condoms certainly are helpful. And certainly if you had a wart on the penis um, or if the, if the woman had a, um, a wart and is having sex with a man, you know, it certainly makes sense to, to use a condom if you want to protect yourself and someone's got, um, you know, an active, uh, an active infection with HPV and visible warts. But, you know, condoms are not going to protect you 100% from catching HPV, which is why we all have it. There you go. So on the subject of vaccines, two of the vaccines on the market, GlaxoSmithKline, Cervix, and Merkin Company's Gardasil, protect mm -hmm. against the two of the high-risk types, HPV 16 and 18, respectively, that are found with, with most cervical cancers. And Gardasil also protects against the, the low risk types. You mentioned HPV 6 and 11, which together okay. are found with most cases of genital warts. And in late 2014, a new version of Gardasil was approved called Gardasil 9. Mm -hmm. And in addition to all the types covered by the original Gardasil, Gardasil 9 has protection against an additional five high risk or cancer causing types that are found with cervical some other cancers. So it sounds like we've kind of got the goods as far as the vaccine goes. So how, how well do they work? You know, um, all of the vaccines, both the, the bivalent or Cervix vaccine and uh, both Gardasil products, Gardasil 4 and Gardasil 9, are both are, are all 
highly efficacious against um, the HPV types, you know, that are included in the vaccine. So I would say, you know, I can't sort of split hairs and say which one is better than the other. They're all highly effective for the types that are included uh, in the vaccine. And so there's no doubt in my mind that the, the vaccines do work, but they have to be administered before someone gets uh, exposed to HPV. So ideally, they would be given to our preteens before they start doing any kind of sexual exploration. So that's certainly before any kind of, you know, either anal sex, oral sex, or vaginal sex. But even before people start exploring sexually, it's important, you know, those, those activities, just like touching um, or rubbing genitals to genitals can transmit HPV. So it's really important to get people vaccinated before. And if you do that, then the vaccines are, are very efficacious. So that was my next question. Who should be vaccinated against HPV? It sounds like young people should be, mainly. You know, yes. I mean, the, the advisory community immunization practices has recommendations that really every 11 and 12-year-old boy and girl in the U.S. should be vaccinated routinely. And, you know, you can start as young as age 9, and you would still get a great immune response um, by vaccinating at age 9. And then for, for women, catch-up vaccination is routinely recommended up until the age of 26. And then for men, routine vaccination is recommended up to age 21. For certain populations that are at high risk for uh, HPV-related anal cancer, like men who have sex with men and HIV-infected uh, men and women, routine vaccination is also recommended up until age 26. It's a little bit complicated there, but the point is, is that it's really, you know, people, young people, especially preteens, we need to vaccinate all of them, and people under the age of 26, because of the recommendations, national recommendations, most insurance companies should pay for that vaccine with no copay to the patient. Excellent. Um, so it sounds like we have vaccines that work really well, and we have pretty clear guidelines about who needs them. Yeah, uh, but my understanding is that we're not really HPV vaccine uptake is not that great. We're not 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 doing nearly a good enough job of getting these vaccines to the people who need them. Um, any thoughts about that, or what we can do maybe to improve that? You know, um, certainly we are not doing as good of a job as we could be, you know, compared to things like um, PET vaccine or the tetanus vaccine or meningitis vaccine, where we're already reached about 80% vaccination rates for our adolescents. For HPV vaccine, we're below 40% for all three doses um, in wow. females and well below that for males. And so absolutely the public health community and the medical community needs to rally around this and, and get folks vaccinated. And CDC has put millions of dollars into an, an educational campaign, as have other medical societies to try to improve HPV vaccination. But I do think that, you know, it's each individual person like you or I, Fred, also talking to folks, talking to people we know, talking to people who are parents, talking to young people um, and, you know, young women and men about the need and the importance of getting vaccinated. And I do think that if all of us are working together to get it done, you know, we'll, we'll get vaccination rates up. Okay. Uh, what about safety and side effects with these vaccines? You know, that's a great question because the vaccines, especially Gardasil 9, which just came out in 2014, you know, is a relatively new vaccine. The other two vaccines have been out um, since 2006 and 2007. 
And so they're not as new, but you know, compared to like tetanus vaccine, for example, they're relatively new. So people are always a little concerned about safety. I mean, now we're up to 67 million doses of, of HPV vaccine that have been administered in the U.S. And so far, you know, both CDC as well as a lot of different um, academic institutions are looking at data to, to examine for any kind of patterns of side effects or, um, you know, serious adverse reactions to the vaccine. And so far, we just haven't been able to identify any patterns because it really appears to be a very safe vaccine. It certainly was in the clinical trials. And with 67 million doses, so far we haven't found any serious conditions associated with vaccine use. So I hope that that makes people feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, but I do think one of the more important things to do is that for those of us who are in the field, to emphasize to people that, you know, we're going to vaccinate our own kids. Um, we recommend vaccination to our family members and just letting people know, like, well, here are the data, but on a personal level, I believe in this vaccine and, and I believe that it's safe. And I think both of those messages are really important to, to get across to people. And you're saying that not just as, as, as an expert physician, but also as a mom, right? Absolutely. I'm saying that as a parent. I mean, because I, I know that having had both patients who've had really terrible experiences with cervical precancer as well as with, with genital warts, you know, I don't want that to be my kids, and I don't actually want my kids also to be responsible for transmitting that as well. I mean, my kids are both boys, so the likelihood, you know, they're not going to get cervical cancer, but, you know, if they have female partners, they might, or if they have male partners, their partners might get anal cancer. I don't want them to be transmitting HPV, and, and I certainly want to protect them as well um, against um, oral pharyngeal cancer, which is also related to HPV and which is sort of increasing in epidemic rates. So, I think it's really important to bring it home and to say, you know, that yes, it's really important both for, for my kids and I think it's important for my patients as well as for the, for the community at large. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, oral pharyngeal cancer. Is that, is that uh, of the uh, mouth, oral cavity, that kind of thing? Yeah, it, exactly. Um, it's, it's cancers of the oral cavity and um, they can't be tested for. There's no pap smear for the mouth, for example, Fred. So there's nothing we can do to really look for it. So unfortunately, the only preventive strategy we have is vaccination at this point. And, you know, by the year 2020, we're going to have more oral pharyngeal cancers related to HPV than cervical cancers. And so it's certainly something we want to pay attention to. Maybe we should talk about that just for a second, because sure. people, people do ask us about uh, oral sex and HPV, and they're worried about it. Um, yeah. I mean, how should we, I mean, I mean, what do we tell people that like my partner is HPV? We've had oral sex. My God, what do I do? Do I need to do anything? Can we still have oral sex? I mean, mm -hmm. what, what messages do we need to, to, to get out there? Fred, this is a hard one because I, you know, I want people to have a happy and enjoyable sex life and not have a lot of fear around this. Um, you know, the, the truth is, is that if your partner was diagnosed with, with warts, for example, I'll just take an example of, Let's say we have um, two male partners and one of the male partners has, has warts on the penis. You know, the concern by the other partner might be, uh, am I going to get some sort of HPV strain in the, in the oral cavity and be at higher risk for cancer? So first of all, if your partner has warts, you know, those are the types of HPV that don't cause cancer. So, so there's one thing. If they do have a, a, an HPV infection with a cancer-causing type, and the truth is, is that there's no way for any of us to really know that. You know, most of the time those infections don't cause any symptoms. And so I don't think that we can go around sort of 
fearful and, you know, being afraid to do anything because someone may or may not have a cancer-causing HPV infection. But I do want people to know that, that HPV-16 especially is related to these cancers and they could be transmitted through oral sex. So the important thing really is to get vaccinated. But for somebody who might have been exposed, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot I can do to reassure them except to say that you know, the likelihood of you getting oral cancer is very, very low. And you know, you're probably going to be in the 90% that are going to get rid of it in a couple of years. But again, Fred, it is hard because it's not something that we can see and it's not something that, you know, we can know whether or not we're being exposed to. Uh, so when, when, when people ask me about this, uh, often I'll say, I'll try to give a sense of perspective. I'm like, look, there's a lot of HPV and there's a yeah. lot of people having oral sex, but there are not a lot of people having these head and neck oral cancers. Um, is that, is that a fair perspective? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're talking about, um, and I can pull up actually exact numbers here, but, you know, we're talking about for cervical cancers, about 12,000 cancers per year, and oral cancer hasn't reached those numbers yet. It's probably, it's going to exceed, you know, um, 12,000 in a few years. So my point is, is that if there are millions, 14 million people getting HPV per year and 80 million people walking around with HPV infection and just really a couple thousand um, cancers, then the chance of some individual person getting cancer is incredibly low. But that being said, I still want everyone to get vaccinated, of course, who, you know, I want, I want all of our young people getting vaccinated so they definitely don't have to deal with that. Very good. Dr. Ina Park has been our guest today. Thank you so much. I mean, there's so many issues and so many questions around HPV, and I, I appreciate your time as you help us sort through this, and I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. I, I, I just can't thank you enough. This has been very enlightening for me, and I know that the listeners will, will, will enjoy it as well. Uh, Dr. Park, thank you. Fred, it was my pleasure. Thank you. So thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. We'll have more to come, so check back often. We're online at ashasexualhealth.org, ashasexualhealth.org. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at InfoAsha and be our friend on Facebook. You can also sign up on the website to receive Asha's update emails, and we'll let you know what's happening in the world of sexual health, including new resources as we roll them out, such as this podcast with Dr. Ina Park. So until next time, this is Fred Wine for ASHA. So long, everybody.